2007, October 15. Today is Lecture 18, The Apple and the Moon, Newtonian Gravitation. Okay, so we're beginning a new unit today, the second part of this, of this middle part here, is Unit 4, on the physics of astronomy. We're kind of going to get through most of the historical bits, although, of course, I'm going to indulge myself and, and bring in a couple historical bits here and there as they are relevant. But now I want to take a little bit of a step back and say, what are the actual rules? What is the physics by which astronomy works? So the first couple of units, we talked about descriptive astronomy. We asked that question, what is it? Describe it. Come up with descriptions of the phenomena we see in the sky. We then looked at the historical development of how people began to try to come to grips with an understanding for why planets moved the way they did. And that brought us from ancient Greece all the way up through Kepler, Copernicus, Tycho, Galileo, and finally on Friday, Newton, who elucidated the laws of motion. And when we left the laws of motion on last Friday, we'd never really said, well, what was gravity? That was other, Newton's other big contribution to this, was to then describe what the gravitational force was and show how Kepler's laws followed directly from his laws of motion and the law of gravity. So this week, we're going to be spending a, a fair amount of time asking the why of motions, we're going to be asking the question, how does it work? In particular, we're going to be asking, how do planetary motions work in the real solar system? We're going to be taking the approach of Newtonian gravity. Now, it is true that the modern theory of gravity is, in fact, the general theory of relativity, according to Albert Einstein, which is the modern theory of gravity in terms of space-time. That is too advanced a concept for what we are dealing with. In fact, you don't even have to invoke, for the most part, Einstein's general relativity in order to explain all the motions in the heavens. We can stick with the 300-odd-year-old Newtonian way of looking at it. And it's perfectly adequate, even as an engineering point of view, to get spacecraft from point A to point B within the solar system. So we're going to start out today by talking about what is gravity. In fact, specifically, what is Newtonian gravity? In today's lecture, I've entitled The Apple and the Moon. The key ideas for today's lecture are as follows. We're going to first introduce the law of falling bodies, which comes not from Newton, but from Galileo, from his experiments that he did as a young man on the motion moving falling bodies. It comes down to the fact that all falling bodies here on the Earth experience exactly the same acceleration. We'll give a little demo to, to show what that's about. And this led Newton, through his laws of motion and, the, and various observations about how objects behave under the influence of the gravitational force, to define his law of universal gravitation. First, he defined gravity as an attractive force that works between all pairs of massive objects, no matter what they are, apples and the earth, the earth and the moon, the earth and the sun, and so forth. Furthermore, the gravitational force is a very specific kind of force. It's an attractive force that is proportional to the masses of the two objects that are attracting each other and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. That's a long-winded, wordy way of saying something, which is a lot easier to say mathematically. But it says something very specific about how the gravitational force works. And in fact, if you invoke a gravitational force like this between the sun and the planet, Kepler's laws follow exactly for the motions of two bodies around each other. The detailed demonstration of that will be in tomorrow's lecture. Today, I just want to establish what is the law of gravity and how does it work. And we're going to follow a style of demonstration that Newton used in somewhat modified form in his Principia. This is going to be probably one of the two most mathematical lectures that you're going to see in this course. 
All I ask to do is just hang on through the demonstration because it's just that, a demonstration that we're not just making this up. You can see in the numbers to high precision that Newton's gravity really does work as advertised. I do not expect you to reproduce these derivations or this demonstration on an exam, but I do expect you to understand what the law of gravitation is and how it works in general, if not in this specific example. Okay, so we need to get to a law of falling bodies. Now Galileo, prior to his telescopic work, did a great deal of work on the fundamental research on motion, how objects move on the Earth here. He would roll balls down inclined planes. He set up a variety of experiments with using different weights. In fact, there's a famous experiment where it was said, at least, and certainly legendary, that he went up to the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropped off two cannonballs of different weights and watched them fall. Well, whatever the actual legends are, Galileo made a very extensive set of observations of how things actually work when they move around. And he found a very interesting result which can be expressed as the law of falling bodies. It goes as follows. In the absence of air, heavy objects and light objects fall with the same constant rate of acceleration. Now let me show you a little bit about what I mean by that. I have some little demos here today. So let's take two things which are very different weights. I have a, a scoosh ball here. The reason I have a koosh ball here is so it won't bounce and roll away. I had enough trouble with things rolling away last week and I have a sheet of paper. Now, I'm going to hold these up here, and I'm going to drop them. Which one's going to hit the ground first? The koosh ball. Think so? Who thinks the koosh ball is going to hit the ground first? Okay. Okay, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm going to take away the aerodynamical problem of a sheet of paper. And it's always a trick to do this by hand. They hit the ground at the same time. What if instead of a koosh ball, I use a two kilogram weight? Now you could argue in this particular example that the koosh ball and the weight have a different aerodynamic cross section, so maybe wind drag is going to be important. Not really. So let's try two weights. Now we have no differences in the aerodynamic cross section. They pretty much hit the ground at the same time to within my reaction rate. Now I'm going to let you in on a secret. That's just the covering of the two kilogram weight. They had exactly the same cross section, but vastly different masses. And yet, when I release them, again, it's kind of a hard trick because the hand has got a little bit of a problem. I have to grip this harder. And so to release it, I have to remember to try to release this just a touch before so my fingers actually do the release at the same time. So two completely different masses, vastly different in weight, nonetheless fall at exactly the same rate to the ground. That is a very anti-Aristotelian result. Aristotle would have argued that the big mass has much more earth in it, much more stuff of the earth, and the tendency of objects to fall is because earth wants to be with earth. Earth is attracting other earth, and so because there's more of it there, there's more impetus for it to fall to the ground. Whereas the light thing has less earth, and therefore it will have less impetus, and it will fall more slowly. But in fact, the demonstration is very clear. They fall and hit the ground at exactly the same time. It's completely independent of their mass. That's an important observation of what is going on in the motion of these objects. 
Now, Galileo could not explain this. He said, whatever the property was that was attracting matter down to the center of the earth worked in such a way that no matter what the difference of the masses were, if you ignored air, air resistance, air drag, they will fall at exactly the same rate. Well, we can't exactly do this experiment without air resistance, without making the room extremely uncomfortable. But there is one place that you could go to do this experiment, and that's the moon, Apollo 15. It's an awful long way to go to demonstrate something that are more than 300 years old, but in fact, that is exactly what David Scott did there with Apollo 15 on the moon. He was able to drop the hammer and the feather without having the little subterfuge like crumpling up the paper here beforehand. In the absence of air resistance, that hammer and the feather fell at exactly the same rate on the, to the ground. In this case, the ground was on the moon. I can imagine that someone like Galileo would be absolutely overjoyed at a demonstration like that. But how do we understand this motion? What is it? Why is it that objects fall with the same rate of acceleration on the Earth or now, notice, even on the Moon? Quite independent of the masses of the objects that are being dropped. Something is acting upon them that cancels out their mass and their acceleration remains the same. In Newton's Principia, he came up with the explanation of this through his law of mutual universal gravitation. Oops, excuse me just a second here. A little minor meltdown. multiple sleights of hand going on here. There we go. He came up with the law of universal gravitation, which stated as follows. The first of these is that gravity is an attractive force. That is, it works to bring all massive objects closer together. There is no gravity force or levity force, maybe, that's pushing things apart. There's only the force of gravity pulling everything together. The second property that gravity had to have is that it is a universal force that it works the same everywhere throughout the universe. Whether my hammer and feather are here on the Earth, or my hammer and feather are on the Moon, or maybe I'm throwing a hammer deep in intergalactic space and seeing, having it pass by a star and watching it move in the gravity field of that star. Gravity is universal. This is a real leap of logic. And other than the sort of gee whiz factor of watching David Scott watch the hammer and the fe fe drop the hammer and feather on the Moon, he was showing that gravity behaved exactly the same on the Earth as on the Moon when you remove the air resistance. The only difference was the Moon is less massive, so the gravity is less. Finally, and this is less, less intuitive but very important, it's based on the third law, that gravity is a mutual force, that it works between pairs of massive objects. It's not simply a property of the Earth or of the Sun or of the Moon, it's a property of all massive things. So if there's a force of gravity pulling me down towards the Earth, there is similarly an equal and opposite force of my mass pulling the Earth up towards me. Now, me 
getting pulled by gravity is obvious. The Earth pulling back on me, not so obvious. And that's sort of the beauty of Newton's, Newton's laws, is they start out really obvious, but then he turns around on you when you're not looking and says, now here's a non-obvious property of this that's crucial to understanding how they work. So what is the gravitational force? The gravitational force between any two objects depends only upon the masses of the two objects that are involved. The more massive an object is, the greater the force it exerts. The moon is one-sixth the mass of the Earth. In, I'm sorry, the, the moon is much, I'm sorry, it's not one-sixth the mass of the Earth. That's incorrect. The surface gravity of the moon is one-sixth the surface gravity of the Earth. That means if you watch that hammer fall, it seemed to fall really slow. That was not slow-mo video from the moon. It's because the acceleration due to gravity was one-sixth what it is here on the Earth. Furthermore, it should depend upon the distance between those objects. The further you get away from a massive object, the weaker its gravitational force should become. Newton had an idea in his head about gravitational force as kind of emanating from a massive body spherically in all directions. And just like light shining out from a source, the further you get away, the smaller and smaller the object appears to you, the less and less of its gravity you'll feel. But as you get closer and closer to the object, the more of the gravity you should feel. Again, that's just a heuristic. That's just sort of a feeling as to how it should behave. He had to then go on and prove it behaved that way, and that the dependence with distance was a very specific dependence of distance. So the force should get stronger as the two objects move closer together. As I move two objects apart, the force will actually grow weaker. Notice that that's it. There's nothing else that gravity depends upon. It doesn't made depend upon the shape of the object. A cubical Earth, a flat cylindrical Earth, and a spherical Earth with all the same mass will exert the same gravity on the moon at the moon's distance. It doesn't depend upon the color of the object. Green objects do not have more or less gravity than red objects if they are the same mass. And it does not depend upon the composition of the object. It doesn't matter whether it's made of rock, water, or high-density gas. Mass is mass, no matter what it's made of. The gravity of a ball of gas the size of the Earth and a gravity of a ball of water the size of the Earth and the gravity of a ball of rock the size of the Earth are all identical. It depends only on how much stuff there is, how much mass, and how far away you are from its center. Express mathematically. In your notes, I give the words, but I'm going to just go straight to the math. Newton's gravitational force law can be expressed as follows. The force of gravity between two massive objects, mass one and mass two, is equal to the product of those masses divided by the distance between the centers squared. And then to make the units come out right, he introduces a universal gravitational constant called big G, G for gravity. Okay? So F is the force of gravity between the objects. M1 and M2 are the masses of the two objects. And D is the distance between their centers. So if I want to know, for example, the gravitational force on me right now, I would take my mass, the center of my body, which is yeah, the center of mass is kind of like right here, just a little over the belly button. And the mass of the Earth, and then how far away the center of the Earth is from the ground. Now, an Aristotle sort of argument would say, well, I'm on the ground, therefore I feel no force. I'm obviously not moving. But in fact, I do feel a force of gravity. That force appears to emanate from the center of the Earth, some 6,300 kilometers below my feet. So when I jump up, I feel a force pulling me down. How strong? It's my mass times the Earth's mass 
times the distance, which is 6,300 kilometers plus uh, a little over a meter, maybe less than a meter, squared. And then this g is the gravitational force constant. It's what makes the units of force come out right when I say use masses in kilograms and distance in kilometers or distance in meters or whatever my choice of units is. It's just a number, and it's a number we can actually measure. This is an example of what is known as an inverse square law force. Notice that the force gets weaker as the distance gets larger, like the inverse square of the distance. We're going to see inverse square law forces popping up all over the place and inverse square laws. For example, brightness falls off like inverse square. This is exactly what Newton thought it should be a priori as a guess going in for the force law because he thought of this idea of gravity as emanating from a central object. And as you get further from a central object, any central emanation fades out as 1 over distance squared. Just like a light gets fainter as 1 over distance squared as you recede from it. A smaller and smaller fraction of the light shining out into all directions falls in your eye. And that was the same kind of heuristic idea that was behind Newton's thinking that, well, the simplest way such a force could behave is as an inverse square law. But then he went one step further and actually showed that not only was it inverse square law, but it was the only force it could be. So let's look a little bit about how this inverse square law force works. Here's a good example of how we will manipulate this, both on homework questions and on quizzes and things like that, but also how you should be thinking about how gravity works. The first thing is to say that gravitational force is inversely proportional to the square of the distance. So let's, let's play with that a little bit. I have two masses called m1 and m2, and I've situated them a distance d apart. Now imagine I took the second mass and I moved it twice as far away. What's the force of gravity between them now? Well, the product of the masses is still the same, but now it's 2d quantity squared, or 1 fourth gm1 m2 over d squared. In other words, the force of gravity is 2 squared, or 1 fourth as strong as the distance it was when they were 1d apart. So as I move them twice as far apart, I get 2 squared, or 1 fourth as strong. So there's two pieces, twice as far, 2 squared, there's the square part, but invert it. 2 times bigger distance equals 1 fourth smaller force. That's why it's called an inverse square law. I can also run it the opposite direction. I can move the second mass half the distance it originally had. Now the force of gravity between these two objects is g times the masses of the objects divided by d over 2 quantity squared. So that's a fraction in the denominator, so that means the 2 squared comes up on top, and the force is 4 times g m1 m2 over d squared. 2 times closer is 2 squared, or 4 times stronger. So the way to think about it is, as I get 2 times further away, I get 2 squared, or 4 times weaker. As I get two times closer, I get two squared or four times stronger. So the force behaves in such a way that the further I get from the source, the further I get from another mass, the gravity falls off. It gets weaker, and it gets weaker as the square of the distance between our centers. Not the distance between their surfaces, the distance between their centers, which I've emphasized by the way I've drawn this arrow here. So that's the first piece. It's an inverse square law force. But it not only depends upon the distance between the masses, it also depends upon the masses themselves. So the second part is that gravitational force is proportional to the masses. 
So now I'm going to take my masses, m1 and m2, and I'm going to leave them at fixed distance. This is now the force between them, g m1 m2 over d squared. If I made the first mass two times bigger, I would get g times 2m1 times m2 over d squared, which is twice the force as before. I have twice the mass, but located the same distance apart for the one, and I get twice the gravity force now. The second mass has stayed unchanged. All right, let's pump up the second mass. So now it's twice the size. Now it's g times 2m1 times 2m2 over d squared, same distance apart, but now that I have two times the mass in both, I get two times two or four times the mass. So if I wanted to make, if, if I made the Earth the same mass as the moon but kept the size as big, I would have a fairly small gravity. But the moon is not only less massive than the Earth, it's also physically smaller. So I'm closer to the center. So I have to take not only the ratio of the Earth's mass to the moon's mass. See, what's the Earth mass to the moon mass is 20? I always forget. Why did I forget that? 80, thank you. Yeah, I was just... The moon, the moon is 180th the mass of the Earth. So why isn't the gravity on the surface of the moon 180th that of Earth? Thank you, David. I couldn't remember the number. Well, the moon is only 3,000 kilometers across compared to 12,000 kilometers across. So I have another factor of about 16, 4 squared, 4 squared in distance. Okay, And 18 divided by 16... Uh, not quite exactly, is about one-sixth. Okay, we got, we got some round numbers off somewhere around the line, but you get the idea. Okay, so not only are you less ma a whole bunch less massive, you're also a lot closer to the center. So you have the change of the force with proportion to mass, but one over the distance squared, because you're closer to the center of the moon when you're standing on the moon's surface than you are to the center of the Earth when you're standing on the Earth's surface. What is G? What is big G? Big G is the gravitational force constant. It's a number that gives the, the magnitude of the gravitational coupling between two massive objects. For our purposes, it's just a measure, and it, a number to measure, and it's actually a small number. If you want to put it in metric units, it's six, in round numbers, it's 6.7 times 10 to the minus 11 newtons square meter per kilogram squared. Now, that's a weird-looking unit, but that's the way it works out. A newton, in honor of Isaac Newton, is the metric unit of force. 4.41 newtons is approximately one pound equivalent of force. Now, g is a number, and it has to be measured experimentally. But g is really weak. g is really small. In fact, gravity turns out to be the weakest force of nature by far. And as a consequence, it's a really tricky measurement to make. Here's an example of how it's measured. You actually have a balance with very large very high precision copper weights, and inside of this structure is another set of copper weights that are free to swing on a, on a in this case, on a quartz fiber. They're very carefully hanging. It's sort of what's called a torsional pendulum. It's kept in vacuum, so there are, you put this in a bell jar and you pump all the air out so there are no air currents and stuff to buffet the little pendulum. And then you take the big outer masses and you swing them a little bit. We have two masses with a distance between them squared, there'll be a little tiny force on the inner pendulum which will torque the inner mass. Since you know the masses and you know their exact distances, by changing the distances of these big outer masses on this track and watching how these little inner masses torsion in response to the gravitational force, 
you can measure g. This is an exceedingly delicate experiment because gravity is so weak. We only actually know the gravitational force constant to four decimal places. It's an exceedingly weak measurement, but can be done. Newton actually had an idea of how to do these measurements, but wasn't able to do it himself. It was later a man named Cavendish who worked out. This, in fact, is what's called a Cavendish balance. Now, let's look at the application of gravity and see how gravity works. And we're going to follow the same kind of logic that Newton used in the Principia. Stand on the Earth and drop an apple. Okay, so I've got an apple here. What is the force on this apple? What is the gravitational force on this apple? Well, the gravitational force is going to be the mass of the apple times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared. Now, now you might argue, well, wait a minute. I'm at probably 200 meters altitude above sea level and holding the, the apple about two meters off the ground. Yeah, but you know, 200 meters in 6,370 kilometers might as well be at sea level. To our level of precision, we'll just treat my distance here as at the radius of the Earth. That means when I'm down here, I'm also essentially at the radius of the Earth. The difference in distance between here and here is so small that R essentially is not changing. So the force of gravity is essentially constant. Well, that's the force acting. What's the acceleration that the apple experiences it when I release it? Well, that's easy. The Newton's second law says the acceleration is equal to the force divided by the mass. In this case, what the acceleration on the apple is, is the force of gravity divided by the mass of the apple. That gives me the acceleration of the apple. All right. Well, I've got a function up here which gives me the force, and I've got a, measure, a formula that says acceleration from Newton's second law is force divided by mass. I've got force in both pieces. Notice, hey, look. The mass of the apple cancels out when I substitute for F, G-M-A-M-E over R-E squared, and I'm left with G times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared. If I plug in G, the known mass of the Earth, and the radius of the Earth squared in metric units, I will get a number like 9.8 meters per second per second. That means if the apple falls for one second, it will go from zero to 9.8 meters per second. During the second second, it will be traveling at 9.8 plus 9.8 is 19.6 meters per second, and so forth. It will be getting faster, faster. So the acceleration due to gravity is independent of the mass of the apple. Notice the acceleration of the apple, the mass of the apple cancels out. Now, that strikes some people as slightly magical because the m in F equals ma here that's the, that's the law of inertia. That's matter's ability to resist being moved in response to a force. Whereas the M here is whatever mass is concerned with gravity. Why does it follow that the inertial mass is the same as the gravitational mass? Newton didn't have an answer to that, and the person who did was Albert Einstein at the beginning of the 20th century, who showed finally that they had to be the same. So I'll just drop a little bit of a mystery on you there. They don't have to be the same, but they are. And that's because of the way in which gravity actually works. So we have here that the acceleration is independent of the mass of the apple. Hey, that's Galileo's result. Mass of big barbell, mass of barbell cover. They both have a different mass. This, this thing probably is 20 times less massive than the filled barbell. 
Therefore, the mass of the Earth is the same. They're the same distance from the center of the Earth. This has 20 times the gravitational force of the little vinyl cover here. And yet when I drop them, they accelerate exactly the same. Why? Well, if you think about it, this has 20 times the inertial mass, which means 20 times the resistance to motion. Therefore, to get the same acceleration, I must push, I must pull on it with 20 times the force that I have to pull on the empty vinyl shell. And so when the Earth does that, the law of falling bodies simply comes out. It falls out of the theory. So, describing gravity in this way, you get the law of falling bodies according to Galileo exactly. Newton didn't have to put it in. It came out of the rules. That's a big difference. You didn't start with the answer you wanted and then tweak your theory to get the answer. You asked, what is the mass form of gravity that makes the most sense? Hey, look, this law of falling bodies follows from that simpler hypothesis. Now, the other part of this, however, that's a little bit counterintuitive is that there are equal and opposite reactions at play going on here. Newton's third law from Friday said that all forces come in equal and opposite pairs. To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So what is the force of the apple upon the earth? Okay, I've got my apple here. It's got a mass. It, therefore, has a gravitational force that's pulling the earth towards the apple. Well, it's g times the mass of the apple times the mass of the earth divided by the radius of the earth squared. If the Earth is feeling a force, what's the second law tell me? It's going to accelerate, right? And it's going to accelerate in the direction of that force. So here's the apple. It's 6,370 kilometers from the center of the Earth. It's got, you know, however, 200 grams of mass. And it's pulling upwards on the Earth. Therefore, the Earth is going to what? It's going to accelerate upwards. How much is the Earth going to accelerate upwards? Well, the acceleration of the Earth will be just simply the fourth force that is exerted upon the Earth divided by the mass of the Earth. So it will be g times the mass of the apple divided by the radius of the Earth squared. Well, I can rewrite this in terms of g mass of the Earth divided by radius of Earth squared, the gravitational acceleration, times the ratio of the mass of the apple to the mass of the Earth. The apple weighs 200 grams. The Earth weighs 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. So when you do the numbers here, you find out that while the apple accelerates towards the Earth by about 9.8 meters per second per second, at the same time, the Earth is accelerating upwards at 9.8 times 10 to the minus 25 meters per second per second. Now that's barely enough in one second to traverse the diameter of a hydrogen atom but it still accelerates upwards. And that's counterintuitive. When I jump off the Earth and I fall back down towards the Earth, the Earth actually falls up towards me just a little bit. Okay, about the diameter of a hydrogen atom, but it comes up towards me to meet me. Now that doesn't seem like anything we should care about if I'm tossing around apples or tossing around people, but what if a planet is involved or a moon? that's a substantially larger fraction of the mass of the Earth than an apple. Then not only does the Earth tug upon the moon, but the moon tugs back upon the Earth. Not only does the sun pull the Earth towards it, the Earth actually pulls the sun a little bit towards it. And that's the counterintuitive bit of Newtonian gravity. 
It's a mutual equal and opposite force. Now, there's a couple things we can do with gravity that are pretty useful to us. One of them is I can measure the mass of the Earth. I can do experiments with falling balls or falling apples, or in the case of Galileo, he rolled balls down an inclined plane to slow things down. And you measure what Galileo did in modern units, an acceleration of 9.8 meters per second per second. Now, we can measure the radius of the Earth. Eratosthenes did that back in the third century. It's 6,378 kilometers at the equator, or 6,378,000 meters. The mass of the Earth should then therefore be the acceleration divided by the force, which is acceleration divided by g times re squared. Work through the numbers, and I get the Earth is 5.98 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. I can never build a scale big enough to weigh the Earth. But I can watch how objects fall and accelerate in the gravity force of a massive object of mass me at a distance re squared away. And what I get is that an acceleration of 9.8 meters per second at a distance of 6,400 kilometers results in an underlying mass of the Earth of about 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. So one of the beauties of gravity is it allows us to measure the masses of exceedingly large objects. And we're going to see tomorrow, for example, on how that can be used to measure the masses of planets and stars using orbits. Well, now we want to pick up a problem that Newton said was the one problem that gave him headaches, the problem of the motion of the moon. What is it that keeps the moon in orbit around the Earth? Okay. Now, the first law of motion, the law of inertia says, if there was no gravitational force between the Earth and the moon, the moon would take off in a straight line at a constant speed. It would go into uniform motion if there were no other forces present. But in fact, the moon is not moving in a straight line at a constant speed. It's following a curved path around the Earth. So what's happening here? Well, the moon's curved path is occurring because there's some force acting upon it. Something is changing the direction and speed of the moon's motion. The moon wants to go in a straight line path, but there's a force of gravity down towards the Earth, which is causing the path to deflect a little bit. So you get a little tiny deflection shown by this red arrow because the moon is actually accelerating downward towards the center of the Earth in response to the force of gravity. It's gravity that causes the moon, if you will, to fall a little bit towards the Earth while at the same time it's moving off to one side. Okay, so how far does the moon fall during one second? So if I said, how far does the moon move to the left in one second, and how far does it fall towards the Earth? You can compute that. It turns out to be about 1.4 millimeters. So that means you'd use a longer time scale to see what the fall is, but it's just a little tiny bit. How far does an apple fall during one second? Well, the answer will be about 4.9 meters. So an apple falls a whole lot more than the moon. But Newton also knew one more important fact. The moon is about 60 Earth radii away. The distance between the center of the moon and the center of the Earth is about 60 times the radius of the Earth. Therefore, the apple on the surface is feeling 60 squared, or 3,600 times the gravitational force that the moon should feel, or an apple would feel, at that same distance. So what's going on? Let's do some numbers. 
The moon, in one second, moves off to, on its orbit and falls by about 1.4 millimeters, about 0.00136 meters. It is 60 Earth radii away, and the acceleration of the moon due to gravity is simply the mass of the g times the mass of the Earth divided by the distance between their centers squared, which is 3600 Re squared. The apple falls 4.9 meters in one second, it's one radius of the Earth away, and the acceleration, as we've just seen, is g times the mass of the Earth divided by the radius of the Earth squared, about 9.8 meters per second. Okay, so how much the acceleration of the moon and acceleration of the apple? And there's a difference of the deflections. The apple, if you will, deflects 4.9 meters in one second, the moon deflects about 1.4 millimeters in one second. If I threw the apple to one side, it would still fall 4.9 meters in one second, even though it was moving to the side. Okay, the ratio of the deflections in one second is the ratio of their accelerations, because the deflection is just the acceleration in response to the force. So the deflection of the moon to the deflection of the apple is just the ratio of the acceleration of the moon due to the Earth divided by the acceleration of the apple due to the Earth it's g times me over 60 re squared divided by gme over re squared. Hey, look, g and the mass of the Earth cancel out, and the radius of the Earth squared cancels out, and I'm left with the, de the deflection of the moon is 1 si over 60 squared, or 1 hundredth. So I expect the moon to deflect in its path 1,360th of the deflection of an apple at the Earth in one second. Well, the deflection of the moon is 1.4 millimeters. The deflection of the apple is 4.9 meters. Therefore, my prediction is that the deflection of the moon should be 4.9 meters divided by 3600 is almost exactly 0 0.00136 meters. This I measure by looking at the shape of the orbit. This I estimate from the law of gravity. When the numbers come out that good, it told Newton he was onto something. It told him that the same gravity that governs the fall of an apple on the Earth, governs the fall of the moon around the Earth. And so I didn't have to have a separate law of gravity for the heavens and a separate one for the Earth. It was the same universal law of gravity. So why does the moon, however, not fall into and hit the Earth? Why is it orbiting? Well, I didn't ask how far the moon moves to one side during that same second. And the answer is, in the one second where it falls one millimeter, it scoots a kilometer, a full thousand meters, off to one side. How far away would it move from the Earth in that same period? If it was moving in a straight line, the answer is about 1.4 millimeters. Therefore, the moon actually falls by the amount to curve its path back down to where it started again. Now, that's hard to see in words. The moon wants to move in a straight line, but is accelerated back down towards the Earth. So now it's moving in this direction. And as it moves around, it tries to move away, but it falls back. It tries to move away by 1.4 millimeters, but it falls back 1.4 millimeters. Moves out, falls back, moves out, falls back. Now I've clearly exaggerated this, but you can imagine shrinking the size of each of these little triangles. Not doing one second, but a tenth of a second, a millisecond. And finally you do it instantaneously by calculus and the moon is simply falling around the Earth constantly. I've done the calculation here for a circle. Gravity is universal. It governs the fall of apples upon the Earth. 
It governs the fall of the moon around the earth. It governs the fall of the earth and moon system around the sun over the course of one year. It even governs the fall of the sun around the center of our Milky Way galaxy, and it governs the fall of the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxies in their mutual orbit. And if you go to the moon, it even governs the fall of a hammer and a falcon feather. It's the same law of gravity for the entire universe. We'll pick up the consequences of how you make orbits in tomorrow's lecture.